This week, we're going to talk about baptism, a declaration of faith. So it's our declaration of faith in Christ publicly before others. And water baptism is a huge part of the Christian faith. It's been there since the beginning. John the Baptist, of course, prepared the way for the Lord, the cousin of Jesus. He baptized. That's why they call him John the Baptist. Some people call him John the Baptizer. He is the one who baptized people in water, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which opened people's hearts to Jesus. And it's the same today. We open our hearts to the Lord through repentance and water baptism is a big part of the process. So let's go in Matthew chapter 3, we'll start with the description of John and his baptism and talking about the one to come. And then Jesus gets baptized in water by John. So we'll read that as part of our preliminary stuff here. So starting in chapter 3, verse 11 of Matthew, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So, we see John's baptism, a baptism in water, and Jesus went ahead and got baptized by John. Now, did Jesus need to repent of anything? Did he need his sins taken away, uh, a baptism of repentance? Did he need to repent? He did not. But in order to fulfill all righteousness, he says to John the Baptist, look, I'm going to do this. So Jesus was leading by example. He was showing humility. He was showing his willingness to be an example to others that we should be willing to be baptized as well. If Jesus was willing to be baptized by John, who are we to say that that doesn't apply to us? So John baptized to prepare the way. Jesus was baptized. Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize. We'll go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. We'll start in verse 18. This is after Jesus is risen from the dead and he is now appearing to his disciples and giving them instructions about how to go forward. So this is the very last three verses of the book of Matthew says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus says, go to all nations and make disciples. That means baptize them and then teach them how to follow God. That's the great commission to go into all the world, to make disciples, baptize them and show them the ways of God. And this is also something that Peter proclaimed at Pentecost 
when Peter is preaching after the great miracle of Pentecost, and he's explaining to them that, uh, that Jesus actually is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and the people who have rejected Jesus and had him crucified are just shocked, and, and they're believing because of the miracle and the Holy Spirit's uh, anointing on Peter's preaching, and they are cut to the heart, as it says here in uh, verse uh, 37 of chapter 2 of Acts, and they they asked Peter what to do. So here, we, that's where we pick it up. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So we see John the Baptist baptizing, Jesus being baptized, Jesus commanding his disciples to baptize, and Peter telling all of the people who uh, came to faith at Pentecost to be baptized. And then let's go to the apostle Paul, who was not one of the ones who got baptized in Acts chapter 2. He very much was opposed to Christianity, to the way and so he got saved later. The apostle Paul, who was at this time was Saul, and he was persecuting the church, and he was going to Damascus to uh, arrest Christians, to take them in and have them face the consequences of what he considered their heresy. And then Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and you know, says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he can't see. And he realizes he's been wrong this whole time. And then God sends Ananias, not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, but a different Ananias to go visit Paul, uh, who they call him Saul. At this point, he becomes the apostle Paul, visit him. And here's what happens. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So pretty quick baptisms. We see Acts chapter 2 Peter preaches the message, and at the end of the message, they baptize people. Here, Paul is saved. He has this amazing experience with the Lord Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Ananias comes, prays for him. He gets healing of his eyes, and then he is baptized right there and then eats some food. And then the apostle Paul here, this man who had the scales come off of his eyes is the one who wrote the book of Romans, empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, and he talks about baptism in Romans chapter 6. But first, I want to talk about something else before we get into Romans chapter 6. And that is, I want to talk about grace versus works. Because when people talk about baptism, sometimes they get a little funny with that. You know, is baptism something we must do as part of earning our salvation? Is it one of the check boxes that we have to make sure that we take care of so that we can actually go to heaven? Is it a works-based idea for baptism? Or 
Should we just skip it all together because none of it matters? You know, we're saved by grace through faith, and so we don't even need to get baptized at all anyway. Uh, what is it? So let's talk about grace versus works so that we can understand how to go into the idea of baptism with a right heart and look at it the right way. Now, when I was a new believer, one of the lessons I learned is that there was a big debate about grace versus works, and there were people who behaved, in my opinion, rather strangely, depending on where they fell on that. There were the people who were all legalistic and they had all these rules and like with baptism specifically, I mean, there were people who say, well, if the person who baptized you said this particular thing, then you need to get baptized again because they need to say this particular thing when you get baptized and it has to be just right, you know, and that I thought was a little bit strange and, you know, you got these works people. And then there's the grace people who just kind of throw everything out. And there was this weird debate going on. And so, you know, I didn't come from inside of the Christian world. So grace versus works and that whole thing wasn't anything that I knew anything about. And so my first thought was, if God is real and he loves us and we can know him and have a relationship with him in this life and that that continues on to everlasting life, and God has actual real work for us to do for his kingdom right now, why wouldn't we just dive in and grab a hold of it? It just seems to make perfect sense. But, you know, the works-based people had all of these kind of like harsh, it turned into a yucky thing. And then the grace without works people that was very confusing to me. And besides, not just with regards to baptism, but just with life, you know, you had the legalistic, harsh people, and then you had the people who, you know, you wouldn't really know that they're Christians just because they didn't do anything. And I just thought it was weird. Both of those were very confusing to me. So how do we understand grace versus works and how we follow God in the New Testament era? How does that all work? Well, if I can solve that in the next 25 minutes, that'd be fantastic. But I'm going to do my best, <laughs> right? Here's my best shot at solving the grace versus works um, debate. It's a strange dynamic, but let's look at it this way. It's similar to the problem people have between trying to balance pride or arrogance, you know, thinking you're so awesome versus humility and hating yourself and seeing yourself as a worthless sinner and that sort of a thing. And people, they're not sure how to navigate that. You know, they, they sort of think, well, I need to think of myself as a worthless worm, terrible person. Uh, but then when I start feeling good about myself, am I doing something wrong? And people will get kind of messed up on this. And for me, here's the deal. The way that you understand pride versus uh, self-hate, arrogance versus self-hate, both of those are sides of the same coin, which is self-focus. So you want to throw that whole coin away and no longer have it be about you. It's not about how great you are. It's not about how terrible you are. It's about Jesus and helping other people. So you set yourself to the side, you realize it's not about you anymore. And the great news about that is then you really get to find yourself. When you 
serve other people, when you're not always trying to prove yourself, when, you, when it's not about you, you get to be part of this great, beautiful world. So the self-focused, egocentric, self-centered, selfish idea, that coin, if we're on the, yeah, I'm awesome, or the, no, I'm horrible, just throw the whole coin out. It's not about you. Then you lose your life, but you gain it. It's how you grab hold of your true life in Christ is to make it not about you. So that is how you solve the arrogance versus hating yourself deal. And the problem with grace versus works is somewhat similar to that. There's one coin that we need to throw out. And so let's try to try to grab hold of that. The problem with grace versus works is that people are thinking about themselves and whether or not they are good enough instead of just simply loving God and walking by faith. So the thing they're thinking about is, is, are they justified? Do they need to justify themselves? Are they justified through what Christ has done on the cross? This sort of thing. And so they're thinking about themselves and whether or not they're good enough rather than simply loving God and walking by faith. So let me give a sports analogy. So I'm a Vikings fan. You know, I watch the games. I cheer for the team. Why do I watch the games, cheer for the team, pay attention to who we're getting, uh, you know, in the draft and what sort of coaching moves are going on? Why would I pay attention to that? Well, it's pretty simple for the love of the game, right? I mean, if you're a, a sports fan, whatever the sport is, or you're an enthusiast for whatever hobby, you know, you, you're interested in it and you love that thing. And so you want to know what's going on with it. So I watch the games, I cheer for the team, not to prove my worth as a fan. That would be weird. I watch the games because I like to watch the games for the love of the game. Now let's just talk about this for a while. You know, let's look at this from the the hyper works or the legalistic perspective, and then the cheap grace, you know, I don't need to do anything perspective from the view of being a sports fan. Okay, so let's say that I need to prove myself as a fan. Then that means, oh yeah, well, I watched the preseason games and I, I know who got cut and who we should sign and I pay attention to the statistics and everything and I do that to just prove to you. I even have a jersey. I got a new jersey this year. and you just, So I'm a good fan. I'm a fan, right? I'm proving myself as a fan. Well, that's weird. You know, if you want to watch the game, watch the game. If you want to watch a preseason game, watch it. You want to, you want a jersey? Get a jersey. What, what are you trying to do proving yourself as a fan? That's no fun. All of a sudden now that's weird. And then let's go on the other side. If you say, oh, I'm a huge Vikings fan. Yeah, I'm a Vikings fan. Well, do you watch any games? No, you can't tell me I have to watch games. I'm a fan. Uh, I don't need to watch games. I don't need to have a jersey. I don't need to follow what their record is and who the players are. I'm just a fan of the Vikings and I don't need to watch the games. Okay, like that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Trying to prove yourself by doing a bunch of things or trying to say that you don't need to do anything to be a fan, that stuff's all just really weird. And it's the same thing with Christianity. You don't need to prove yourself, but why do you want to say you're a follower of Christ and not want to follow Christ? It's just, it's just weird. So as long as we're thinking about proving our worth rather than just enjoying football, it's weird. If we're trying to prove our worth as a fan to ourselves, to other people, it just turns weird. It can turn into that 
weird legalistic, I've got these check boxes that I've done and that's weird. Or the opposite reaction against that, you know, the cheap grace idea of, I want to be a Vikings fan without actually having to be a Vikings fan. I don't want to go to any games. I don't want to watch any games. I don't want to have a jersey. I don't want to talk about football, but I want to be a fan. That's weird. And these are both sides of the same coin, which is self-justification. Either the legalistic, I'm checking all the boxes, so I am justifying myself, or the, oh yeah, I don't have to check any boxes, and I'm justified. It's the same coin. Throw the self-justification coin out. So how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to grab hold of the things of God? Well, I should be a fan of football because I love the game. And it's the same thing with following God. Instead, let's believe the gospel, get over ourselves, and simply love God and walk by faith. Now, we've been doing daily devotions since COVID started, uh, video devotions. I encourage you to uh, check those out at uh, goodhope.ag. You can see our devotions. And we've been in the gospel of John. Recently, we did chapter 14. And so I want to read a section Chapter 14, verses 15 through 27. And this is some interesting stuff in obedience to God and where that comes from. So this is at the Last Supper. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is some of the last things he'll ever get to say to them before he's arrested and, you know, tried, scourged, and crucified and killed. So this is the night before all of that happens. So he's telling them some important stuff. Let's see what he says here about the motivation for obeying God. Starting in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So Jesus is saying for them to not let their hearts be troubled and not be afraid. The night before he's going to be crucified, he's going to be arrested late that night. And so it's amazing the context there. But let's just look at these three verses, verse 15, 21, and 23, and try to get an idea of what Jesus is saying there. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Some versions say, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But that's what it says in every version I read in verse 21. 
Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And so who does this apply to? All who love him and the natural uh, reaction, the natural follow of loving God is to obey. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. It's just like to love football is to watch football. If you're a fan, you're going to watch the games. If you love God, you're going to follow his ways. It's just a natural progression. So why do we obey Jesus? For the love of God. We obey Jesus because we love God. We love the ways of God. And the reality is, you know, the analogy I've been giving is as a sports fan, but the truth is we're actually players on the field when it comes to the things of God. It's not that we're fans of God. We're on the team. You know, we've got God as our coach and we are the players and we need to trust when God calls a play, we run the play. When he says, okay, you know what? This might not make sense, but I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right, on three, go. And then you go run the play because you trust your coach and you love the game. So that's why we obey God. We obey Jesus for the love of the game. Let's go back to baptism then. If we're going to be baptized, then let's be baptized, not because we're trying to figure out if we have to, or we don't have to, but let's just love the things of God and find out about baptism and then go forward in the natural way that would make sense. If we just love God and love his ways. So Romans chapter six, the apostle Paul here is talking about baptism. He's the one who was baptized by Ananias after having the vision of Jesus and the scales fell off of his eyes. He realized he was completely backwards uh, and he was opposing God when he thought he was defending God. So now he gets baptized and then he talks about baptism because in the early church and what we see here, obviously when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, they're dealing with this works versus cheap grace deal. You know, the works, here are all the boxes I need to check in order to justify myself before God. And then the reaction against that, which is, no, I don't have to check any boxes. I'm justified anyway. You know, so you've got the self-justification, which is off. Of course, it's just through Christ. We just submit to that. But then we also don't just do the opposite of that and just say, well, I'm not doing anything. We now, you know, because of the love of God, we go forward in that. So he's dealing with that. So we'll, you'll see that obviously here in Romans 6. Here we go. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And that's the cheap grace idea. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. And then he continues on. I just wanted to throw verse 15 in there. Because it shows that they're reacting against the hyper-legalistic religious culture of the day. And then they're swinging into the other ditch of, hey, we can be followers of Christ without actually having to follow Christ. Fantastic. You know, and those are both wrong. They're both based on self-justification. Throw that out and instead see the good things of God, love those things and grab hold of them. And one of those things is water baptism. And what does that symbolize? Again, let's go to verses four and five. That's kind of the the crux of the matter, the main concept here. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So an important part of Christianity is, I used to be like this, but now because of the grace of God, the goodness of God, I am like this. I used to be somebody who hurt other people, who had a bad attitude towards others, who was cruel and selfish. Now I am redeemed, forgiven, and able to live a new life of caring about people, loving people. I used to only do things I wanted to do. Now I help other people and I serve the Lord. Uh, We make a change. I used to be controlled by sin, addiction, lust, anger, whatever it might be. Now I am free from that by the power and the glory of God to live a new life. And so in water baptism, and we do baptism by immersion. And again, I don't think it's about uh, finding the ritual form that appeases God in that legalistic sense. It's about having a right heart before God. And so, you know, I firmly believe that the biblical model is baptism by immersion. That's what we do, but I don't get super nitpicky about that. But we're going to do baptism by immersion, and it signifies, you know, being crucified with Christ and laying the old down. And then as Christ was raised from the dead, so we can live a new life by the power of God. We can be free from all the stuff that kept us back. We can be set free from our guilt and shame, and we can live a new life with a new identity as a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, which is verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's not just about a new life now, a life of benefiting others and a life of doing the right thing and a life of doing right by God and loving the ways of God and embracing that or diving in. But it's also where we get to rejoice in everlasting life and trust God for life eternal. It's, I mean, I'm telling you, this is a pretty good deal. So we want to grab hold of it. The old has gone. The new has come. It's time to live for Christ, live a new life. This is what Jesus 
paid the price for on the cross. If we go to the last verse in Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died on the cross that you may be forgiven, that you may lay down the old you, that you realize this isn't who I'm supposed to be. And you can pick up the new you by the glory of God and live that new life in Christ. So when we look at baptism, it isn't about, oh, this is on the list that I have to check off to justify myself before God. And it isn't that, well, we don't have a list. We're not going to do anything. But instead, Let's throw that whole self-justification thing out, either the legalism or the reaction against legalism in cheap grace. Let's throw that out and let's love God, love the things of God, walk by faith. The way I see it is it's like this. God has given me something very, very precious. He has shown me something very, very precious, who I truly am, how to be free, how to have a life with God. And then He says, but there's an enemy that tries to destroy that. So there's the devil that wants to come in and ruin that for people. And then God says, and you know what? This precious thing I've given you, there's more for you, but there's also so many other people who can have that and they don't even know yet. So why don't you go tell them? Okay, you know, like I'm going to try to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. I don't need to be talked into it from a, you'd better do this checkbox thing. And I'm not going to reject it because I don't have to check a box. It's just a natural flow of the gracious gift God has given me and the desire to see other people receive the same good thing. So we see how obedience can come from loving God and walking by faith, not from having to justify ourselves by checking the boxes or rejecting the checkboxes and you know, trying to follow God without following God. I hope that makes sense. That's the deal about baptism. I was baptized in my mid-20s, and it was a, a, a great experience. I probably put it off a couple years longer than I should have. You know, I probably should have been in my early 20s when I got baptized, but I was still trying to figure everything out. And by the time I was ready and a baptism service came up, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going. I'm going to go get baptized. And I was baptized in water. Pastor Kent and Pastor Rick were there, and uh, they were the ones that baptized me. And I remember Pastor Kent just kind of leaned over to me and he says, you know, I'm going to have to hold you down a little longer than most people. (laughs) I I still remember that. That was fun, you know, because not that he was jabbing me for my past, but, you know, I I needed a good cleansing. And he, he thought that was funny. I thought it was funny. He probably told that joke to a bunch of people. But just like the Apostle Paul, you know, he had the great experience of a healing happening when he was baptized. Jesus had the great experience of the Holy Spirit coming down and resting on him like a dove and the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Like amazing things can happen at baptism. Now we consider it to be primarily symbolic where, you know, you're demonstrating to the people who are there, the witnesses who are there, that you have already chosen to follow Christ. You have received the gift of salvation. You have 
believed in what Jesus did on the cross that's sufficient for you to be forgiven and you're pledging your life to serve God, the old is gone, the new has come. So it's primarily symbolic, but these spiritual things can happen. And for me, you know, I didn't get healed and there was no voice from heaven, but it was a a thing where afterwards I just, I knew, okay, I'm not wondering about God anymore. I am serving God. I am a child of God. I have made the public declaration and I'm in. And it brought me to a closer place with God. Again, it's not about legalistically following a rule or rejecting the rules. It's about for the love of God, what should I do? Be baptized was the thing. So I went ahead and was baptized. So my question to you, is it time for you to be baptized in water because you love Jesus? Because you've made a commitment to God and you want to show that to the world. You want to say, yes, the old is gone and the new has come. I am crucified with Christ and my old past is gone and I'm going to live a new life. I am living that new life. Is it time for you to make a public declaration of your faith? If so, I'll see you July 11th, 5.30 for the preliminary meeting, baptism at six o'clock. Make sure that you're on board and you got the right heart with that. Maybe it's time for you to come to faith in the first place. Very few people get baptized on the day they get saved. It does happen. You got the Ethiopian eunuch. You got all the people at Pentecost, you know, the apostle Paul that maybe been a couple days. You know, you can get baptized on the day you get saved, but you can get baptized later. And maybe today is the day where you need to make your declaration of faith. You need to say, yes, God, I believe in you. I trust in you. You've been starting to see that there's a God in heaven who loves you and that you can have a life with him, a new life, and that there's everlasting life with you. If if that's where you're at, today is your day to come to faith, pledging your life for Jesus. Maybe you've strayed away from God, the God that loves you. Maybe you got hung up in this self-justification and you're trying to figure out which boxes to check or if you should throw the check boxes out altogether. And you forgot about just having a simple relationship of loving God and learning his ways and walking by faith. Maybe you got too hung up in that stuff. Whatever it is, let's set that all aside and love God. So I want to pray. And if it's time for you to renew your faith or come to faith or even be baptized in water, I invite you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Lord, we just honor you. And Lord, I pray for each one right now that we would be able to love you, know you, just like we love our favorite things about this life. If it's watching football or playing football, if it's outdoor recreation or reading books or whatever it is, the things that we do because we love those things, let our service to you and our relationship with you be about loving you and grabbing hold of your good things, not worrying about the check boxes or rejecting the check boxes, but having a natural flow of action and thought that comes through knowing you and loving you. And Lord, for those right now who need to make that confession of faith, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage to do that. And if that's you, it's very simple. You ask God for forgiveness, and then you pledge your life to learn his ways and walk in his ways. So simply like this, pray with me if that's you. Heavenly Father, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross is enough to forgive me of my sins, to take my past away, and to bring me into a new life with you. So Lord, forgive me. 
Let the past be the past and let me be born again, born new, learning your ways, walking in your ways. I pledge my life to walk with you in Jesus' name. If that's you, now you're on a new path. And Lord, for those who are ready to be baptized, give them the courage to to come and be part of it. So Lord, let your blessings be on each one of us. Fill us with peace, fill us with joy, and fill us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.